We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look here at um, Proverbs chapter 11 with me. In verse 12 and following, y'all remember a guy named Chuck Colson, Watergate uh, time, went to jail for uh, a related charge, but he began what was one of the greatest prison ministries, him, Bill Glass, the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest jailhouse ministers of all time. And uh, he made an interesting statement. You know, this is a Brown University graduate, Marine Lieutenant, had access to the Oval Office, walked in unannounced. Only six people in the world could do that, and he was one of them. And he spoke one time at a, um, a businessmen's fellowship in Dallas. When I was a young believer, I heard him speak. He got converted about the same time I did. And he said something interesting. He said, because we, wa- we had what seen the 60s go down. Okay. And he said, the root word of culture is cult. And the word cult historically has meant religious rules. Uh, it now has a bad term. But cult is just an innocuous, neuter idea that we have the Denton Bible, cultic belief. And Sunday, preaching the Bible, the, uh, our moral axioms that we have, that's our cult. And so he made the statement that any culture is not naturally atheistic, that you can't have a cult or culture without cult. You have to have an understanding of who you believe God is and what reality is. And then you can build a civilization around it or try to. And so with that in mind, that is why in the Ten Commandments, your first four commandments are about God. Then your next one is about those who teach you, honor your father and mother. And then the next five are about life, about men and women. Don't mess with their wives, their lives, their reputations, their possessions. And don't even covet them. So you start first with God. And after you understand who God is, now you have the idea of says who. That's called uh, authority. And then how you know. That's epistemology because God has spoken. So God in his word says this. I now know what is right and wrong and who says it and how to know it. And now I can rightly relate to human beings. When you lose cult who God is, Culture now disintegrates. You have nothing to hold it together. Amen? Have you watched the news lately? (laughs) We're watching it. Okay. They said to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor. They're inseparable. Loving God and loving your neighbor. First John, whoever says he loves God but hates his brother, that's a liar. You cannot love God whom you can't see when you can't love your brother whom you can. Uh, James, uh, with your mouth you bless God, and with the same mouth you curse men. Made in the image of God, my brethren, these things ought not be. And so the commands of the Bible are never, ever separated from goodness, and goodness is never simply directed at God. It's man also. And so, that is the nature of this paragraph, is that what you think about God is going to direct how you feel about civilization and people. That is why in the Bible, Christ is never by himself. He always has to get up early and head off before everybody else to get time by himself. Uh, Andrew met Christ and went and got Peter and said, we found him. Uh, Philip met Christ, and he went and got Nathaniel. We found him, of whom the Moses and the law and the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come and see. And they came, therefore, and they saw, and they stayed that day. They never forgot it. Uh, the woman at the well went into the city. Come meet a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? He says, she said, you answer it. Um, he goes into a house. They lower a guy down because you can't fit in to listen to him. He's on the shoreline. He has to get a boat off the shore because there's too many people to listen to him. People crowding around him trying to touch him. Who touched me? Peter said, who didn't touch you? 
Everybody's around you. Christ is always surrounded by people because, as the uh, soldier said that we're told to go arrest him and didn't, no man spake as this man spake. Caiaphas said the whole world has gone after him. And they observed the confidence of Peter and John, understood they were uneducated and untaught men, and then they recognized they'd been with Jesus. And so Christ was the great, he's the only guy in the Bible that you have a verse about him that says, behold how he loved him. And so let me ask you a question. Uh, are you popular? Meaning the populace. Do you get along well with people? And by that I mean because of your love, your kindness. People always hate us because of what we believe. But do they love you just because of who you are? When I was at seminary, I remember Dr. Hendricks saying to all of us prospective pastors, he said, uh, how's your circle of friends go when people meet you? Do you find them drawn to you? Or once they find out who you are, do you find them leaving? And he said, this is the problem with our seminary, he said to us. We graduate guys based upon their ability to regurgitate answers. He said, the ministry is going to be your ability to relate to people and take truth into their lives, to build a bridge. And when they step onto that bridge, you have a relationship, but you begin it with your love. He said, often we'll get guys that come here and they're marvelous in school and they do great in class and then they go crater in the ministry because nobody likes them. They have what's called theological B.O. Okay, they just can't relate to human beings. And so what they do is they come back to seminary and get four years and a doctorate. And then they have to go into the ministry again. And they crater worse. So you know what they do? They go back to seminary and teach. And you just kind of build this thing into your, this kind of inbreeding into your seminary. And uh, be encouraged, because that's what we're looking at here. Okay. Now, let me just show you something in verse 12. He who despises his neighbor lacks, literally, heart. The word despise means to look down upon. This guy despises his neighbor uh, not because, you know, he's criminal, but because he knows a secret about him. A man of understanding keeps silent. He knows something private about his neighbor. It's not something criminal, because in Israel you had to report that. Otherwise, you had to offer up what was called a trespass offering, that crime was going on. And so this is just something that is a secret something about your neighbor. You know, that's where the word gossip comes from. Sibling means a brother or sister. Godsib. When you had someone that was not your sibling, but they were close as a sibling, and they were like a god sibling, like a godfather or a godmother. It's not your mother, but she's that close. And so it's a friend that you're that close that he's like a brother. And when you're that close, do you learn some things about people? Yes, you do. And you trust that that person will not be a tail-bearer. Because when you are, you are now a gossip. You can do things to them that nobody else knows. You can reveal truth on them and destroy them. And so this man who despises his neighbor lacks heart. But a man of understanding, he keeps silent. When I say Harriet Olson, y'all remember Little House on the Prairie, the woman everybody loved to hate? I don't know what she made for playing that part, but she should have made a million dollars a week because whatever, she had to play the bad girl. And every time that she would learn something new about somebody, it was now public knowledge. That's what a gossip is. They've got the inside track, but they don't know how to keep a secret. People love to gossip because when you gossip, you're now the center of attention. And you get a smug sense of superiority 
you now get to judge that person and even a sense of deity. They need to be harmed and I'm going to play the part of God. Let me show you something. Just look at chapter 18 and verse 8 just real quick and tell me if this is not true. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They're like little parts of a fried pie, all right, of a chocolate donut. Are you with me? And they go down into the innermost, or literally, they go into the, uh, the, the chambers of the belly. When anybody gossips to you, you don't say, stop, let me take notes on this. It goes down and it is, you can remember it on your deathbed. It's something that nobody else knows. They go down into the innermost parts. And we like to be the star of the show. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know Kendall Lucas? Yeah, I know him. Can you keep a secret? I'm Fort Knox, man. You just know <laughs> Department of Public Safety had to come pick him up this morning about 8 o'clock, take him in for questioning. How do you know? Jerry Falbo told me because he knew <laughs> What would they take him in for? Grand theft auto. <laughs> Stealing cars. Whoa. Does Jamie know about this? She's part of it. Yes. <laughs> Kendall would break through the driver's side window. Jamie would go in, hot wine, boom, take off. <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde. Thelma and Louise. Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> yes, sir. And they caught him. Yeah, they caught him. How'd they catch him? They saw a surveillance, saw a tattoo. You're kidding. I didn't know Kendall had a tattoo. That's Jamie. Banditos. <laughs> what are they going to do to them? They're going to have to do public service 60 hours. They've got to take in youth choirs into juvenile center. <laughs> Don't you just love that? <laughs> oh, man. We love that inside dope. Y'all ever heard of the National Enquirer? You know, these rags that tattle. They just tell you stuff that you never knew. Well, a guy that has a low view of his neighbor, he lacks, he despises him and he lacks sense and he talks. It's like being a bully. When, whenever you see a guy that's a bully, your heart hurts for the little guy that he is despised or the girl that was a loose girl, and the guys would talk about him. And it just hurt for that condescension upon man in the image of God. And so the guy that has heart, a man of understanding, the man that doesn't lack heart, it's the person that sorrows because he's rightly related to God, and he understands that's a man in the image of God. Can anybody else here not watch the ASPCA commercials for the prevention of cruelty to animals? As soon as they come on, they just kill me. And that's just looking at an innocent animal. And that's the way they feel about somebody that is done wrong. It just hurts a man of understanding. And so your relationship to God is going to affect your civility to your fellow human beings. He keeps going in verse 13. He says, he that goes about as a talebearer. A talebearer is you're not lying about the person, you're telling the truth. And that's why it can be so easy to gossip, because you're not lying. You're telling the truth. That's why it's Godsip. That's why you're a God sibling. You're so close to them that you know that and you rat on them. You break that trust. And so he reveals secrets. But in verse 13, 
He that is literally faithful conceals a matter. You're not lying. You're just not going to talk about it. And the reason you do that, that you're such a good friend, is that in verse 13, you're faithful. In verse 12, you have understanding. What did Chuck Colson say? Culture is built on cult, religious rules. In verse 14, where there is no guidance in context, no biblical understanding, the culture fails. People fall. Where you don't have cult, you end up people going into places and shooting everybody. You end up hooked on drugs. You, go, you have murder. You have all kind of horrid things happen because you don't have any guidance. But in abundance of counselors, when the term counsel is used in the Old Testament, it's talking usually about a prophet. You remember a guy named Ahithophel, David's uh, counselor? It says that his counsel was like the counsel of God. And so where you have counselors, there is literally deliverance. The culture dodges the bullet because of its knowledge of God. That's why when America pressed to the West in the early 1800s, the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists got together in what was called the Plan of Union. And they said, every place that a new town is begun in the West, go West, young man, every place we put a town, we're going to have to put a courthouse, we're going to have to have a sheriff with a star for light, and we're going to have to have a, a schoolhouse, a courthouse, and a church. We've got to have one. So the Presbyterians and the congregations got together with the plan of union. We've got to put up a church, or we're going to have a culture that is barbaric. All right? Let me show you something. Look at chapter 29 of Proverbs just real quickly. In chapter 29 and verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish or are unrestrained. That's not talking about vision like a dream to do something. The Jewish revelation of truth through the prophets came through vision. Often a prophet will begin, this is the vision of Habakkuk. And so uh, where there's an abundance of counselors, there is victory. When there is no guidance, people fall. Where there is no vision, it means you don't have a Bible. You don't know cult. Then there's no culture. The people literally are unrestrained. Keep a pit bull on a chain. When you take that chain away, it may take him just a few minutes, but he'll figure out there's no restraint on him. And then you're in trouble. And so when you take God away from a culture, the people literally are unrestrained. And that's why the next phrase says, but happy is he that keeps the law where you have restraint. Sometimes when you watch CNN, do you feel like, I really don't want to go outside. There's states that I wouldn't want to go to because it's like Abraham said when he lied about Sarah being his sister, he said to her, I said to myself, there is no fear of God in this land, and they're going to kill me and take you for their wife. I'm scared. When we went to Russia, I remember kind of a feeling of trepidation, and I asked my guide, her name was Galena, I said, something feels different over here. She said, you see no churches. We have no churches. They got outlawed. The only churches are monuments from the old days, and they're empty. She said, in America, there's steeples everywhere. So you have a sense of law and order, and that's what makes you nervous. And so, in verse 14, where you have counsel, your nation will dodge the bullet. Are we having some struggles in our nation right now with restraint? with killing people, with racism, with 
Is it a male or a female? Is it a him, a she, or an it? What is a marriage? What is a home? What's right? What's wrong? Is there right or wrong? John Paul Sartre said, without an infinite standard of reference point, all points are meaningless. If you don't have God, you have no way of saying, this is a husband, this is a wife, this right, this wrong, this is moral. You don't know. We are bubbles of nothingness on seas of emptiness. John Paul Sartre said it correctly. And so, uh, we have these problems, and we keep wanting the government to legislate peace and do you really think that if we take away guns, we're going to make man more faithful to the image of God? No. It's like I think God in heaven would say, you know, since the Enlightenment, y'all have scorned me, and you have taken away restraint, and now you're killing each other, and now you're dying of venereal disease, and now your homes are disintegrating, and now your children are in anxiety and despair and whatever, and you're washing down the toilet. And you want a bunch of senators and representatives to fix it on a session of Congress. And you've done this for 300 years since the Enlightenment, which was really the Dark Ages. When you reject God, put man in his place, you call it the enlightenment, you got rid of me, and now all of a sudden, where there's no vision, you're unrestrained. Now the people fall, and you want to fix it in a session of Congress. But you never hear the word, God, sin, evil, truth, right, wrong, repentance, faith. Am I wrong? No, you don't hear it. And so we want a salve, but we don't want a solution. And so that's verse 14. When you don't have guidance, your culture goes down. But if you have lots of people with Bibles, there is deliverance. That's why with the Apostle Paul, they wanted to do missions out in the world because you had the falling Roman Empire, and it was falling because they had no cult, and it's coming down. Uh, whenever the, the Goths moved in when the Roman Empire fell and they took over, it was the monasteries and the church that were still in place, and they sent out missionaries to... Uh, monasteries to begin places to begin educating the people that you could now have civility once again because we had lost the cult of the faith and now all we had left were these monasteries that would go out and preach the gospel and try to bring order to the fallen Roman Empire well it keeps going here in verse 15 this is there's three verses on one side of verse 15 there's three verses on the other side this is the pivotal verse. He that is a guarantor for a stranger will suffer. When somebody says, will you co-sign for me and bear the reproach if I don't pay? What do you think? Steve, you're an economist at North Texas. Don't do it. If it's your kid, you can suffer. Okay. But a stranger, you don't trust him because you don't know who he is. You can't depend on his word. And yet he's gonna take you to the cleaners. That's why when you have a guy on the sidewalk out there peddling, homeless, and the thought goes through your mind, are you really? Or is this $10 for meth hit? Same as me, I think the same thing. If they said to you, could you sign me over your check? You really wouldn't because you don't know who that person is. Verse 15, if you're a guarantee, you're going to suffer. But if you hate putting your life in jeopardy for a guy that you don't know, you're going to be secure. Why is this verse here? Because it fits with the context of who you trust. When my grandson, T.C., went to college, he went to Tiffin University, 
Have I shared with y'all that he was fourth in the United States in the shot put? I'll share with you again. Okay. Set a Virginia state record shot put, 67 feet. Went to Oregon, the Olympic trials, where they had 11 shot putters from high school competing for the nationals. He was in first place till a guy beat him by an inch and another inch, and he ended up fourth. And fourth in the nation, got him a scholarship, going away to college in the north. Okay. And I wrote him a letter, and I said, TC, you're going to have people tell you what is true. Now, if it's in math or in algebra or in some other deal, you're okay. But if it's in sociology, psychology, history, literature, I said, you better be careful. When I was a young boy, back before the earth's crust hardened, okay, the school, the athletic departments, the culture helped raise you. Amen? That's not the case anymore. And so when somebody tells you of what truth is, what sex is, what the family is, what morality is, the guy's telling me, you are about your father's age, and they were taught by my generation. You're getting what a bunch of humans think. Don't trust it completely. Take good notes, spit the answers, get your grade, but don't trust completely in what somebody's telling you about truth. Amen? Because you will suffer for it. And so in verse 17, you want honor? I'm sorry, verse 16. Here's the way you get honor. A gracious woman. That's because of her relationship to God. She gets honor. Question, can you have nothing but a Bible and go through life and do fine? Say yes. Yeah, you may have to hustle to get a job someplace, but you're going to get elevated because of who you are. I ran into a guy this week at the church. I said, what do you do for a living? And he is high up in media production. Has done very well. A lot of responsibility. And I said, how'd you get started? He said, when I was in college at a particular agricultural mechanical school down by Marlin. Okay. He said, some guys came through and I kind of helped them as a, as a student there. They were professional men. And one of them asked me as they were going to an athletic event, can I get them some hot dogs? And he said, I did. But I got them hot dogs, pickle relish, mustard, cheese, chili, ketchup, drinks, everything. And I brought it to them. All they asked for was some hot dogs. And the guy looked at me and said, son, this is a layout. What's your name? I told him, and now he makes more money than you and me and all of us in here. How did he do it? He was faithful. He, he was a Christian kid, lived out his faith. See a man skilled in his work? He'll not stand before obscure men. He'll stand before kings. I got a buddy that I do a Bible study with. His name's Randy Travis. Y'all ever heard of him? Yeah, he needed some help singing, and so I got together with him. Started, that's, not, that's not gossip, though. That's a, that's a lie, okay? But he had had his stroke, and I'd, his wife used to go to Metro, and I visited him, and we just began a Bible study. And so I asked, you can ask Randy and watch his eyes, and his wife will speak for him. They, they work in tandem. And I said, how did you get started he left Marshville, North Carolina to go and try to break in at Nashville. And he worked for a guy that was a part-time agent that would work with musicians. And they would work at his restaurant, kind of a chicken place, and got Randy a job cooking there and then trying to find him some places to play. And he said they would cook chicken and there was a shoot going up over the, up in the ceiling and out that got all your chicken 
vaporized chicken renderings. I don't know what to call it. But whenever you'd cook chicken, all your chicken goo would go up in this chute. Is, that, is it chicken goo a word? A chicken goo chute. That's where it would go. And it was full of evaporated chicken. Okay. And Randy got to working on the chicken and he looked up at this mess up in this chute. And so he gets, takes his shoes off, gets on top of the stuff and starts cleaning chicken goo. All right. And he cleaned it spick and span. And the next day that owner came through and went, la, who cleaned my chicken glue out of that? And Randy said, I did. And he said, not bad. He said, can you sing that good? He said, forever and ever, amen. <laughs> and the rest is history. And I said to his wife, Mary, I said, you telling me the door opened because of him cleaning out a chicken goo place? She said, that's exactly right. If you can clean chicken mess, you can do anything. That's in Habakkuk, I think, or some place over here. It's just excellence, see. And so, if you want to attain honor, a gracious woman, a ruthless man, ruthless is the word for no mercy. Ebenezer Scrooge, all he attains is riches, but that's it. Verse 17 the merciful man, 16, gracious woman, 17, merciful man, does himself, what's the last word? Good. The cruel man does himself, or literally, it says he troubles his own soul. It's going to come back on you. And so, verse 14, no guidance, you fall. Truth, you're delivered. Fifteen, don't trust men as you should God. Sixteen, woman. Seventeen, man. They are honored because they honor God. Where there is no cult, you have no culture. That's why when a couple comes to me and says, will you marry us? I go, maybe and maybe not. Can you go through counseling and I say, young man, can you prove to me that you can try to love a woman as you do your own body? That means you apologize often and deeply. Okay. And young lady, can you submit to a man and respect him? Because the reason you're going to love her is because God says. The reason you honor him is because God says. Now, are you that close to God? that you will do this. If you can, there's a chance you can survive this. But if you can't, you don't have a cut dog's chance of doing this. And so, gracious woman, merciful man, does himself good. Uh, that's just simple as you can get. Good, trouble, faithful, sinful. The hustler, the bully, the pimp, the liar, the thief, the violent man, the bigot, they're going to struggle because they don't have guidance. Y'all ever heard of a guy named Ty Cobb? He was one of my heroes. One, of all the guys I used to read about, still do, in professional baseball, he was the most interesting. I may have told y'all this story before, but it bears retelling. He, Ty Cobb... Uh, hit 366 average and he played till he was 38 years old or 40 no no he played 42 42 he played and he was that good that he hit 366 average if a baseball player hits 366 one time he's mvp he did it for a whole career i may have told you the yogi berra story that they asked Yogi Berra one time, who was the greatest, baseball, greatest hitter that ever lived. He went, Cobb, that's where you start. 366, lifetime. Uh, and a sports writer said, what, what would he hit today, Yogi? And he said, oh, he'd still be great. He did 300 today. 
He said he hit 366 a lifetime. Yogi said, yeah, he, but he'd be 90 years old today. He wouldn't hit 366 if he was 90, and he said that's how good he was. But Ty Cobb had this incredible sense of competitiveness that just alienated him from everybody. And when he died, and he died rich, he invested money in Atlanta in a thing called Coke, and then he invested up in Detroit in a thing called Ford. And he, but he had two wives that had restraining orders on him. His kids wouldn't talk to him. At the Hall of Fame inductions, nobody would eat with him and talk with him. He was just alienated to everybody. When you would look at his face, it looked like a Nazi prison guard. His eyes were so intense. One time, he had tonsillitis, and it was going to keep him out of a game. He went to a dentist, was the only guy I could find, and said, could you cut these out? Now, the dentist was crazy enough to try. And he went down and hacked on him until finally he had swallowed so much blood. He said, you're nuts, and he left. He went to his hotel room and took a pair of scissors and cut out his own tonsils. Try that. He took scissors, and he'd cut and then he'd gag and spit up blood until he had cut all of his tonsils out with scissors. Then he went and played the game because he was not going to miss that game. You're saying, was that a World Series game? It was an exhibition game. And he would not in any way relent. That's how good he was. And when he died, only four ball players came to the funeral. It was mostly little leaguers in Royston, Georgia. Uh, no family, no friends. And one of the last things he ever said, if he had to do over again, he said, I'd make more friends. A ruthless man attains riches. The cruel man does himself harm. And so we conclude in verse 18. The wicked earns deceptive wages. Ebenezer, you've got a lot of money, but you're empty. He that sows righteousness, a true reward. Sows, that means that you take a seed and throw it out there. It doesn't come up, but you trust that life will come back, inevitably come back, and multiplicity come back, and come back like you sowed it. He that sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit reaps eternal life. You can follow God or follow your flesh. It is going to come back on you. And so the guy that sows to the Spirit, he ends up with his family, relatively normal. He has friends that are good. He has respect. He has a conscience that is clear. He has a security that he's not going to blow his life doing stupid stuff. He can keep his finances, his legacy. Generally, his health is better. He's not addicted to anything. Because he sows, he does the right thing simply because it is right. And he continues to do it, and he simply waits upon God who is faithful. Amen. That's a real simple graduation message right there. And so, once again, we come back to Chuck Colson. You cannot have culture when you do not have cult. Let me ask you, is it possible to where we could take a kid and tell him that he is not in the image of God? He is a product spawned from the simply the processes of nature. He is a cosmic orphan. He is a bubble of nothingness on a sea of emptiness. Nobody loves you, nobody made you, and nobody cares. That's who you are. To tell him, as Mr. Freud would have said, you don't have a soul, you don't have conscience, you don't have a mind. You have a liver that secretes bile, you have a mind that secretes thought according to the pressures from the outside that are put on it. You don't have a will. It's an illusion. It's fixed upon circumstance. That's Sigmund Freud. But you don't have a mind and you're not in the image of God. That's a myth. And then you say to him, all there is is the cosmos. There is no God. It's just you. As Carl Sagan said, you're the blue dot. That's all that you are. You're a blue dot in the cosmos. 
Y'all ever see the movie Rebels Without a Cause? It was the first teen movie in the 50s. James Dean, Natalie Wood, Sal Mineo. The three things common about all of them is neither of them had a father that was worth a darn. And the movie begins in a planetarium with the high schoolers, all the tough guys, kind of like West Side Story. And they're all in the planetarium. And the planetarium guys said there was a big bang. Out of it was spawned cosmic dust that began to organize. And from that came you. You are less than cosmic dust. And then the planetarium shows it reenacted on the screen. And there's this blinding white flash. And when the flash occurs, you see the kids, the tough guys that are sitting out there. And their face goes, it's terrifying to them. And it's trying to show you these are the kids that we're raising. They don't know who they are and they're scared. And so James Dean went to Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood went to James Dean. Sal Minio went to both of them. And they tried to find order in a place where there was no love. Started in the planetarium. The movie ends in the planetarium where Sal Minio, who is named Plato, trying to look for an infinite, gets shot. And James Dean takes his gun and looks at the cops that shot him and said, he had no bullets. He's Plato. He's unarmed. He's just waving this gun. There's nothing to him. Then the credits come. Have a nice day. Because that's what we're producing. Kids of the cosmos. Lord of the flies. The Bible is just a collection of man's evolving experiences with what he thinks to be a deity. That's liberal theology. Education, uh, never mention God. If you do, we will punish you. We will take your tenure, and you sure don't pray to him. 1963. Final truth does not exist. Morality is a personal choice. There is no final standard. No one can say that you're wrong. Gender is a personal choice. You can be a man, a woman, an it, a them. No one can say, and if you do say, we will punish you. We surround them with the arts, education that enforce and reinforce this belief and punish what is in defiance of it. The order of a home is now antiquated. Husband, wife, kid, corporal punishment, the foolishness bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of discipline drives it far from him. They will come take your kid. Uh, Whiteness is now a systemic evil. It's basically just taking Nazism and flipping it. It is taking the Ku Klux Klan and redirecting it. That's all you're doing. We're going to use racism to stop racism. And as a result, the culture that we have built on, we have to cancel it. I thought it was the best culture in the history of the world. No, we're going to cancel it. It's systematically errant. 65 kids... We try to make sure they don't get conceived. If they do, we will kill them. And if you try to defy that, we will go after you. And so, is there a chance that when you raise a kid, and I mean, that happened to me when I was 13 years old. When I was 70, in 73, there was, wasn't that uh, Roe versus Wade? 73. So, from the time I was 13 to the time I was 23, it fell apart. We're now post-modern. We're not even modern man that tries to find truth outside of God. We're now post-modern. There is no truth to find. It is said that philosophy is a blind man in an alley at midnight looking for a black cat that is there. Uh, Post-modernism is a blind man in an alley at night looking for a black cat that doesn't exist. And so we've given up the search. And that's the world that we're growing up in. Is it possible that you can get a kid with a devolution of a home, violence, with absurd sexuality, violent to his fellow man, a bully, hooked upon self-medication, whose self-perception creates angst, who has no ultimate work ethic, no ultimate honesty? Is there a chance that you can get something in that kid now that you raise like that? Yeah. And so, without culture, or without cult, you have no culture. 
If you are working with a machine that is a big metal machine that is pointed with edges and it's moving with gears, big, huge, massive machine, you can work with it as long as you stay outside of it. But what they'll tell you to do if you're working on that machine is roll your sleeves up. How come? You don't want to catch your sleeve. Because if you're outside of that machine, you're okay. If that machine sucks you on the inside of it, it is unfeeling, it is non-arbitrary. It will cut you into pieces and turn you into mulch. Question, what's the machine? Nature. Man can stand outside of a violent, fallen nature red of tooth and claw, and we can stand outside of it and we can use it, throttle it, master it, as long as I'm apart from it. Does God give me the privilege of being able to stand apart from nature? Yes, he does. It's called God, the creator of all, and I'm in his image. We're the only animal that stands upright. Do y'all know that? A gorilla might try to, but he's really unbalanced. A chimpanzee, you can dress him up, but he can't do it. Had a kid in the choir when he left, he said, I think that a kangaroo can do it. Rebellious kid. And I said, ah, oh, no. You know why a kangaroo can stand straight up? Because he got a size 47 foot. All right, that's all. You take that, give him one of your shoes, he's going to fall right on his face. We can stand upright. And God allows us to be able to have senses that feel, we can feel where pain is coming. We have opposable thumbs and radius and ulna. We can turn, fix things. We have eyes. We can see the way things really are. We can hear the things really are. We can smell when something's rancid. We can test when, taste when something's bad, unless you've got COVID. Okay. So we have these senses that enable us to move around the machine and not light on it and get sucked up into it. And that is why I think, and others think, that the miracles of Jesus were concerning man and the machine. Did he ever heal the blind? Now you can see. Did he ever heal the ears? Now you can hear what's really there. Did he ever, can he ever make it to where we can long for the pure miracle of the word that you might grow in respect to salvation if indeed you have tasted of the kindness of God? Yeah, now you can taste. Uh, we can be a sweet savor offering. We can be the aroma of Christ. I can smell when something stinks. Now I can not be, have a withered hand. Now I can work for him. Now I cannot be a, a, a paraplegic. I can walk and leap and praise God. Now I can be a dead man and live. And so God, I think, does all of these miracles to let us know that he can re-deify. He can bring us back into relationship with God that we can function as humans the way that we should. That's the miracle of Christ, the miracle of miracles. And so, what's the lesson for us? Know your Bible. You cannot have culture without the knowledge of God. Father in heaven, maybe there are some here this morning that simply cannot see, that cannot hear, that cannot taste or smell or stand or run or walk or work as you intended them because they are dead to you. And when they are dead to you, they are dead to what sexuality is, dead to what the home is, dead to what gender is, dead to what nature is, dead to what the galaxies are dead to what man is, dead to what the family is, dead to marriage, dead to the city, 
dead to all that is glorious and good, I pray that you would touch them, that they might see that there is no system by which we are made alive, but there is a person, an event that is pointed to in the book of God that points to this man and what he would do and how he would victor and that by coming to him with empty hands that we can be made alive to God, that we can be back in your arms once again, that we can be adopted into your family, that we can have a new mind and a new heart and a new will, that we can have the law of God on us and our heart, that we can have a new covenant, that we can be filled with your spirit and we can navigate life not just to the end, but beyond that end into eternity. And Father, there are so many prevailing voices around us from the media, from politics, from the arts, from uh, professional sports to uh, the, the newscast that they're around us with lies from the father of lies. And they are extremely destructive. They will not simply misinform us but they will misguide us to a wrong end. And so, Lord, we pray that when we are cut, we might bleed Bible, that we would make it ours, that it would go deep down into our hearts. And we pray for the children that we bring forth into this den of thieves, this den of iniquity, that God, like uh, lighthouses, they could be attuned to where the rocks are, and know how to make it. And so if there is one here this morning that knows you not, might their prayer this morning be, Heavenly Father, I have sinned, and I am alien to you, and I am dead to you, and I do not desire you, and so I do not choose you. But I pray that through Jesus Christ, you might come into my life and live through me and for me and in me. And I take you as Savior, and I take you as Lord. I turn from myself to believe your word, and I'll rest in it. Bury me under a cross someday, because all else, oh God, has failed. And Father, we'll ask these things through Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen.